We're a very fruitful church. So what you saw this morning with the kids going around, that's only half of our battalion. And that's the ones whose parents decided to come today. So if you drink the water, we will be fruitful around here. Um, but I was thinking about, so that's how we celebrate Ash, um, Ash Wednesday. That's how we celebrate Palm Sunday. We have the kids. We sing a song. They go around. Um, we save the palms, actually. Uh, this year, Pastor Esty braved the cold. I was his cheerleader. Um, and we burned the, 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 the actual palms to make the ash for Ash Wednesday. So that's how we roll around here, right? Um, but I was thinking about how they celebrate around the world. You know, there's some places where they have um, a processional, you know, whether it's the 12 apostles or, you know, Jesus himself. But they have a processional of this remaking of coming into Jerusalem. Um, there's some places, we're not going to name names, England, um, where they burn stuff. Um, they burn jack-o'-lanterns. I don't know what the tradition is or how it started. I'm not English, but God bless them. Um, but what I was struck by was um, there's a couple places, um, Italy and Ethiopia, which historically is amazing, and they both have great things to do and great gifts to the church. And I thought it was wonderful how in two places around the world, right, in two different parts of the world, what they do for Palm Sunday is they, they, they gather the palms, um, and then after you go to church, you either put it on your doorpost um, at the entry point of your house, or or you display it somewhere in your living room. And the idea was this reminder all year long that Christ has come, Christ is coming. So everyone who walks through your doors, everyone who sits in your living room will be reminded that Jesus is alive and he's come. And I thought that was really, really beautiful. Now, um, in other parts of Europe, they wonder why Christianity is dying in Europe. In other parts of Europe, they don't have palms. Um, we're not going to name names, Latvia. Um, they, they make these like intricate flower things and they actually wake up the kids by beating them you know it's just like happy palm sunday you know like i said they wonder why christianity's dead in europe i'm just saying you know there's christians there and they're trying but stop beating the kids you know um but that's palm sunday but also i've been thinking about you know um, the persecuted church around the world. You know, I think about Christians who die for their faith. One of the privileges we have in our country is not just freedom of religion, but we get to even worship however we like. You know, there's places where even pronouncing the name of Jesus is a death sentence. You know, it makes you reorient and think about your faith, right? Um, there's places around the world, but also place close at home. Um, it's been heavy on our hearts and many of our hearts in the congregation, what's been happening in Louisiana. You know, we don't have to look far to see a persecuted church. In Louisiana, there were three uh, majority black churches that were burned in the name of hate. Um, in the history of this country, especially in the 20th century, this was one of the markers. You know, we would burn down the black church. Um, so the three churches that have been on our hearts have been Greater Union Baptist Church in Opelousa, St. Mary Baptist Church in Port Barry, and Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. Uh, as a congregation, we've drafted a letter um, just of support to say, hey, we love you, we're with you. Um, I think a lot of times we can wax poetic and say, oh, the church is the people. But it sure is nice to have a building where you can gather. And it sure is nice to be in a building that wasn't burned down in the name of hate. So we have a letter back there just to say, hey, we love you. We support you. Um, if you have time on your way out, please sign the letter. I know they have a GoFundMe campaign. If you don't know what that is, is they're trying to raise money to rebuild the churches. Um, talk to me about it. We'll try to straighten you out if you're interested in that. But again, when we celebrate Palm Sunday, may we be reminded not just of what it means to us, but what it means to our world. Amen? May we celebrate with the Christians around the world who celebrate a little bit different than us, but in all to proclaim Jesus the King has come. Let's pray together. Father and our God, we thank you so much for sending your son. Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for revealing the truth, to us, the, the truth to us that Christ is king. And Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your preparation. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your boldness. We thank you for your courage. 
to come into the lion's den that was Jerusalem, to proclaim the truth of you being king, and to even love us till the cross. We love you, Lord Jesus. Teach us how to love you more and how to love one another. In your holy and precious name, amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, we will be reading um, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Starting in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, or if you're Greek, Bethphage, apparently, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her coat by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So Matthew 21, in Matthew, and, and all of the Gospels, you know, this week in the blog, I shared about how Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of the Gospels talk about this triumphal entry. In Matthew's version, what's amazing is in all this happening, Jesus picks quite a scene. Jesus picks this. William Barclay, the great commenter on New Testament, Old Testament, said, you know, this is the last act of the Jesus drama. Jesus paints quite a scene. You see, Jerusalem was happening, what was happening when Jesus arrives is Passover. What is Passover? Passover, Passover is this celebration. It's a national religious holiday where Jews would all gather to remember the liberation, the God who slaved them, who saved them from slavery in Egypt. Now, if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, you'll recognize and hold on to that it wasn't just Jews that left Egypt, right? It was everyone who believed. So even from the very beginning, God didn't just care about the blood that flowed in your veins. It was about faith. So all those people who came and left Egypt and joined this tribe, of Israel, this, this, this body that we became Israel, they celebrate, and to this day, they still separate, celebrate liberation from slavery in Egypt. So this is the scene that Jesus picks. He picks the city of David where all of the Jews are gathered. How many Jews? Well, a lot is the answer. Um, there was one governor about 30 years after the, the life of Jesus who said by his count, there were over 250,000 lambs that were slaughtered. Now, in the Jewish uh, religion, the understanding was that one lamb would represent 10 people. So if you were good at math or you just slick like me, you add a zero, 250,000 lambs meant two and a half million Jews. That's what they expected in Passover. Now, some theologians and scholars who are much brighter than me, they're like, well, I don't really think it was two and a half million. So how many? They said, a lot. So we're going to go with a lot this morning, right? So there's a lot of people. But here's what I find even more fascinating than a lot of people coming to Jerusalem. Again, it wasn't just what we think of as, as Jews, right? It was people from parts of Asia. It was people from parts of Africa. It was people from all the ancient known world because Jerusalem was the city of David. Passover was God's great liberation. And we would come together to celebrate. And that's where Jesus chooses to announce his arrival. 
God's people would gather from Africa, from Asia, from the, all of the known world to say, this is our celebration. And this is where Jesus chooses his shining moment. In our culture, we have a little bit of a religious holiday. Um, we have a little festival that happens around this time of year. We like to call it March Madness. This is a time of year where everyone who cares nothing about basketball can tell you the difference between a Chanticleer and a Cavalier, right? It's a time where we all know everything and we talk about our brackets. You know, at the end of March Madness, though, after all the games have been played, they have this two to three minute video. It's a bit cheesy, you know. This guy is probably making a lot of money because every year they use the same song, right? And the song's called One Shining Moment. And it's about two to three minutes and they talk about the hard work and the teamwork. And this is your shining moment. Well, I thought about that, and I was just like, well, that's our holiday. In the Jewish holiday, Jesus chooses Passover as his shining moment. He chooses this when he knew all of the world would be gathered to celebrate and worship God. He says, that's when I'm going to unearth. You know, we call this the beginning of Holy Week. But you see the wisdom and the brilliance of Jesus. Shocking, I know. But you see the wisdom and the brilliance and the intentionality of Jesus to say, if this is when all the world is gathered, this is when I will show you that I am king. And Jesus prepared he prepared for this shining moment, didn't he? The first part of our, our, our passage this morning talks about how he sent disciples to get a donkey and a colt. So he picks two of them and he sends them out. And, and some commenters feel like, you know, they knew they had to know what was going on. And I'm like, yeah, you have 2,000 years of history to say you knew what was going on. All I knew, if you're a disciple, is this is the guy who walked on water. This is the guy who's been healing and saving people. This is the guy who proclaims himself to be the Messiah who's come. If he tells you to go get a donkey, you're going to go get a donkey. You might not figure out all his theology, but you can go pick up a donkey. But the other thing I love about this is, you know, some commenters believe that Jesus was coming from Bethany, which would be the home of Lazarus, who he raised from the dead, uh, Mary and Martha. So some people believe maybe it was their family that held the donkey. But what I love about this is he shows up and he sends the two disciples, says, go get a donkey. It's going to be next to a colt. You bring both of them here to me, right? And what I love the most about this part is the password is, you know, tell them the master needs it or tell them the Lord needs it. Now, I wish that worked in life. Like, I wish I, I could walk to, like, anywhere tomorrow. Like, I I need a new car or something. He'd be like, the Lord needs it. He told me to give it to me, you know? Like, it won't work out for me, but it worked out for them. But what I love about that is what it says about Jesus. We like to think of Jesus as this automatic. You know, yeah, he died on the cross for our sins. It was all planned out. But the intentionality of Jesus to go before and say, hey, when the time has come, I want you to choose a donkey and a colt, and I'll send two disciples, and you will give them to come to me. But what I love about true worship of God is not just about God making it a way for us to worship. It also God allows us to find a way to worship him back, right? It's something that we have to do. And what I love is this unnamed person in this story didn't just choose any donkey or any colt. He chose one that had never been ridden before. I think that's amazing that God asked you for a donkey and he says, you know what, Jesus? I'm not just going to give you a donkey. I'm going to give you my best. Remember what David taught us? I will not give my God that which cost me nothing. Listen, we don't know if this person was wealthy, but we know that to have a donkey and a colt back then, you were at least upper middle class, right? And we know that this person is sacrificially giving a colt and a donkey that had never been ridden on because they knew in that culture that signified not just importance, but Jesus, this is my gift to you. And then the last part, which I missed for years, is simply this. 
When, when people were great kings and they came into the cities, they came on the war stallions, the war stags, you know? They came to show how powerful they are after they conquered the enemy or if they were being raised and, and proclaimed king, they came on the war stallions. But Jesus chooses a donkey. Why? Because in that day and culture, the donkey signified peace. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is coming to be crowned the King of Kings. And what I love the most about Jesus' intentionality here is that he's not coming to say, I have come to take over this earthly world. He's not coming to say, I come with the power of the sword. He's not coming to say, look how great and mighty I am. He's coming to say, I am the Prince of Peace. And how I usher in my kingdom is going to be a little bit different. But the people are amazing. Because when the prince of priests comes to be made king, they play their part and they play it well. You see, the first thing is when the crowd sees him coming, and we think it's probably a couple million people, they receive Jesus as king. One of the ways is multiple times in the passage, Matthew tells us, they take off their cloaks and they throw it on the ground. Now, remember what we found out about David and Jonathan. Your robe, your cloak was your identity. Your robe, your cloak said how important you were. It said everything is about you, well, about how fancy your dress was, how fancy your coat was. Was, right? So for you to take off that coat that was your identity, that was your family heirloom, that represented everything that you are, and to throw it on the floor before the king says, all that I am belongs to you. All my identity is now wrapped in you. Everything that I am belongs to you, and I will put it on the ground for you to walk upon. This has happened generations ago by a guy named Jehu, who was a brilliant military strategist. And, and when it was time to be king, Elisha was like, well, I don't know about the real king. He might kill somebody. So he got one of his students. And the student went, you know, silently, and he gets to Jehu, and he says, Jehu, I have to talk to you. And he goes in his back room, and he says, Jehu, you will be king. You know, even though you're fighting for the king, that's not the right king. You will be king. And Jehu comes out, and his friends were like, so why are you telling secrets? What's up? We're supposed to be boys. What's happening, right? And he says, you don't understand. God has chosen me to be king. And his friends that day took off their cloaks and they threw it on the ground. And it became this Israelite tradition where when we have a king, we say all that we are belongs to him. The second thing that's interesting in this passage is multiple times we find out about palm branches. You know, people cut down palm branches and they threw it down. Palm branches was what they used to celebrate the military conquest. You know, there was a guy by the name of Simon Thassi. Simon Thassi was part of the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabean Revolt was a bunch of Jewish people who were like, we're tired of Roman, uh, actually it's Greco, so it's Greek occupation first. We're tired of the Greeks owning us. We're tired of Greeks making us slaves in our own land. We're tired of their oppression. We will revolt. And Simon Thassi was actually really, really successful. Well, it depends on how you're your metric because they killed a lot of them. But Simon Thassi conquered Jerusalem. And when he conquered Jerusalem, it's kind of like the beginning of Jewish identity in that period. And when he conquered Jerusalem, guess what he came to town on? His stallion, his war horse. And guess what the people did? They chopped off the branches. They threw it at his feet and said, praise God, Hosanna, Simon Thassi is here. And the people also greet Jesus in our passage. They greet Jesus with, with a word that we sang this morning. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were owning Jesus as one of their own. So now you have these people who are used to celebrating kings and military power, who are used to celebrating all of their allegiance belonging to someone. You have all these people now throwing it all at the feet of Jesus. But the crowd sings something that changes the game here. They sing this word, Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna. 
Hosanna does mean the God who saves us, but in their context, they were saying, Hosanna, Jesus, we need you to save us now. Hosanna, we're tired of being oppressed. Hosanna, we're tired of being taken advantage by these Greek people. Hosanna, we're tired of being slaves in our own land and being second-class citizens. Hosanna, we need a God who saves us today. So when you worry about why, we, why people wanted an earthly king, or, you know, sometimes I think we look down upon them for saying they want an earthly king. These were oppressed people. These were people who were killed in their own homes. These were people who were fighting just to breathe. And when they looked for a king, they thought that's what salvation was all about. But then comes Jesus to change the game. Because for Jesus, being king meant complete allegiance. To Jesus, it wasn't about the empire that you see. It was about the kingdom to come. To Jesus, it wasn't about your military power. It was how do I give of myself? The things you love about Jesus is he conquered by laying his life down. Jesus before had talked to him in secret with his, his disciples. Remember, there's times before where Jesus would do something and be like, Hosanna, you're the Messiah. And Jesus would say what? Shh. Don't tell anyone the time has not yet come. And I always used to look at that. I'm like, Jesus, why are you shushing people? This is good. Get the news out. But you know, when he chose to get the news out is when he knew all of the world had gathered. When he knew all of the world had come to Jerusalem to celebrate. When he knew that his people from Africa, from Asia, from all of the known world were in one place. That's when he's come to announce. That's when he's about to publicly say, yes, I'm the Messiah. But we think of the courage of Jesus on Friday, but we forget that the courage started on Sunday, on Palm Sunday. Because Jesus is walking into the heart of the Roman occupation and saying, I am king. I don't know if you ever study about authoritarian leaders or, you know, people who like to oppress and kill people like the Romans did. Like, it's fairly safe to say they don't like anyone coming up and saying, no, 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 I am king. The courage of Jesus begins on Palm Sunday when he's walking into two million people to say, I know you think it's all about Rome. It's not. It's all about me. I am king. That takes courage on Sunday. But it also takes courage because to the Jews, who there might have been two and a half million of them, he's looking at all of them and saying, for thousands of years almost now, you've gotten it wrong. You've read the scripture and you've missed me. You celebrate the Passover and liberation in Egypt. I come to give you liberation today. You miss me. You gather to celebrate Passover. And yes, that was a great victory, but there's a greater victory still to be won. You've missed me. But how about Jesus and the courage to say to the ruling class, the priest, you know, we have a good, good, healthy disdain for the priests and the Pharisees. Now, when we talked about David, we said, you know, the job of the priest was to be the intermediary. The job of the priest was to say, God, this is where you are. This is where your people are. How can you use me to, to bridge the gap? And we learned that that's not a special job given to special Christians because even in Genesis or even in the Exodus and beyond in the Old Testament, God says what? I want you to be a kingdom of priests. So we recognize and we need to own that even to this day that God desires for all of us to be priests for him. That means wherever the world is, wherever God is, you're supposed to be the intermediary. But these priests took their eyes off of God. They took their eyes off of the people and they only focused on Rome. So instead of being an intermediary between God and the people, they decided, you know what? Rome's killing us. Rome's in power. How about we just keep the peace? 
That's our job now. That's how we'll be an intermediary. We'll just keep the peace. There's nothing to upset the peace than this country guy coming into your big old city to tell you you got it all wrong, to tell you that he's now the king, to tell you that he's the anointed one. Jesus was courageous because he walked into the heart of the Roman Empire. Jesus was courageous because he came on a donkey into the heart of all of the known Judaism to say you've got it all wrong. It's about me and what I've got to do. You know, um, Simon Fassi had a brother named Judas the Hammer. He's one of my favorites, you know. Um, a lot of people complain. They don't know why that he's called the Hammer. Some people think he had a hammer that he used. Some people think he was just a little bit evil or a little bit, you know, violent. Um, but what Judas Maccabeus did was great for Judaism. If his brother won back Jerusalem to establish it, Judas Maccabeus went into the temple. The Greeks had taken everything the Israelites held dear. Sorry, microphone. The Greeks had taken everything the Israelites held dear, like the temple, and they turned it into a brothel. They turned it into the sacrifices they would make. They started making sacrifices for Zeus. So Judas the hammer, when he came, he's just like, we need to clean it up, you know? So when he came, he not only took back the temple, but he reinstilled Israelite worship. Perhaps you heard of this little thing called Hanukkah. That's Judas's work. So to say this guy was revered would be an understatement. He's known as the anointed one, the temple restorer. But what I love about Jesus is when he comes onto the scene, he's saying, I don't want you to worry about Rome. My kingdom has come. He says to them, I don't want you to worry about even this temple. That's been the heart of everything. And a couple days later, what did he say? He's like, hey, I know you guys don't like this, but this temple is going to fall anyway. But I'm going to institute a new kingdom where you are going to be my temple of my Holy Spirit. And what's the reaction to all of this? The people look around and they're like, well, I guess, yeah, he's a prophet. That's exciting. But I think what Palm Sunday is all about for them and for us is simply Jesus asking, am I your king? Am I your king? And if you look at Jesus, his whole life, he says this time and time again. And people for thousands of years have been denying that Jesus is God and denying that Jesus is king. And it's not just people outside the kingdom, it's even we in the kingdom. Am I your king is the word of Jesus. Remember Jesus said, you know, only God can forgive sins. Remember that story in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus is preaching and he's a really good preacher. So more and more people are coming and more and more people are coming. And these four guys have a friend who's paralyzed and they, they want to get him in because they know Jesus can save them. And the only thing they can do is they, they get up on the roof and they take apart the the roof and they lowered a the man through the ceiling. Well, as a kid, we heard that story. Everybody's impressed by what Jesus did. I'm like, no, 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 he's God. I want to find out what happened to the roof. You know, like we know he's going to save him. He's Jesus. Not that big of a deal. But like who paid the bill? You know, but that's just me. You know, I'm a little, yeah, I'm cynical, I guess. You know, but who paid the bill? But they lowered the man down. You remember some of the Pharisees are just like, well, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is like, well, choose your own adventure. You know, is it easier to forgive sins or is it easier to say get up and walk? Right. Jesus, from the very beginning, wanted everyone to know that he is God. John, Jesus' best friend who we studied for a couple years, who knew Jesus in and out, he said, you know what? Jesus is not only God, he's God because he's the only one who's always existed. In the beginning of his gospel, his, his recollection of Jesus' life and ministry, John says, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus wants you to know, if I'm your king, I'm the 
the one and the only one that can forgive sins. If I'm your king, I'm the one and the only one who's created everything. But if I'm your king, I am also the only one who can judge. John also said, quoting Jesus, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to him to whom he's pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him jesus is god because only he is fit to judge everything that jesus says john john says it there everything that jesus does the father's already does that's one of the, the, the most fun i think you can ever have in the bible find something jesus does in the new testament and then find it in the old testament because everything that jesus does the father does as well but john is saying is jesus your king because if he's your king you need to know that he's the only one that can forgive sins if he's your king you need to know he's the only one who's always existed if he's your king you need to know he's the only one who holds on to what is right not you him jesus is the only one who gets to hold on to what is right now, you know, Jesus asked this question, am I a king to the disciples? He asked it to the crowd, the religious rulers, the Romans, the pilgrims. To the disciples, you know, the words kind of fell flat. Because they knew the history of Simon Thassi and, and Judas Maccabeus, and they wanted this earthly king as well. So it wasn't really always connecting. To the crowd, when they saw Jesus coming on a donkey, they're like, yeah, this is the prophet from Nazareth. To the religious rulers, they're like, yeah, 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 he's the blasphemer who's going to enter as a king, but we're going to make sure he dies like a criminal. To the pilgrims who had come from all over the world to see Jerusalem and to celebrate Passover, they reminded what Nathaniel said, right? Like, Can anything good really come from Nazareth? But to us, what do we say? Because that's the question for Palm Sunday for us is, am I your king? That's what Jesus wants to know. Am I your king? What do you say today? C.S. Lewis had this thing that they now called the Lewis Trilemma, where he said, you know what? Like, everyone in this life has to decide, is Jesus Lord? Is he a liar? Or is he a lunatic? Because to C.S. Lewis, it was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was comical for us to say, you know, Jesus is a great moral teacher, or Jesus is a great prophet. To him, it was you had three choices. Either he's Lord, he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. Because here's the thing, a good moral teacher doesn't say, I am God. A good moral teacher doesn't say, it's all about me. A good moral teacher doesn't say, I have come to save the world. A good moral teacher doesn't say, I and I alone can forgive sins. A good moral teacher doesn't say, I am the one who holds everything that's right. A good moral teacher doesn't say, I am the only one that can judge. In fact, Lewis says it like this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. You know, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of with the man who says he's a poached egg. Y'all didn't know this about C.S. Lewis, but C.S. Lewis got bars, right? He got feelings. You know, he lets you know. 
He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall flat at your feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any other patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to any of us. He did not intend to. Now it seems obvious to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that Jesus was and is God. There's so many of us in this room this morning that have made these decisions about who Jesus is. There's so many of us in this room this morning that would rather Jesus just be a prophet. Because here's the thing about prophets, I can tune them out when I want to. There's so many of us this morning who would rather Jesus be a great moral teacher. Because if he was a great moral teacher, then you know, like, your truth is good for you. There's so many of us who are buying the lies that this world is telling us that it's all about the individual. That your truth matters more than, than anything else. Because Jesus isn't just about the individual. He cares about the world. Jesus did not come to be your prophet. Jesus did not come to be your great moral teacher. Jesus did not come to be your feel-good story. Jesus did not come so that you can tap into him when you need. Jesus came to be your king. And for some of us this morning, if we're honest, the words of Jesus keep falling flat, not, on, not just on our heads, but even in our hearts. And if we're honest, we'd rather Jesus be a good moral teacher or a prophet of old, because what does he ever have to say to us today? We know everything. We're better. We're smarter. We're more and more advanced than everyone has ever lived. At least we think so. Or to some of us, Jesus maybe is just one of the teachers, one of the prophets, one of the people. Or maybe, or just maybe, Jesus is this criminal that deserved to be crucified. Or maybe, can anything good, you know, we, we make fun of Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? But if we're honest, there's some of us who say, can anything good come from 2,000 years ago? Can they really know what they're talking about? I mean, we're so much more advanced now. But the thing about Palm Sunday is that Jesus was asking Israel back then, and he's asking God's people today, am I your king? Do you believe he's your king? Because if you're saying Jesus is Lord and Jesus is your king, that means that you believe that Jesus and Jesus alone can forgive sins. That means that you're believing that Jesus and Jesus alone knows what's right and can judge this world. But yet it also means that you're believing that Jesus and Jesus alone is the anointed who has ushered in the kingdom of God. Palm Sunday and Holy Week is where Jesus entered as the Prince of Peace. But he leaves as a crucified criminal. Palm Sunday and Holy Week enters in where Jesus, our God, who was betrayed... Jesus, our God, who was hunted down, who was arrested, who was beaten, who suffered, and who was crucified for us. This week, we'll remember the Last Supper and Monday Thursday, and we'll think back about how Jesus knew he would die. He knew he would be betrayed, and yet he still loved well, think about how the God of the universe who spoke the world into existence got down on his knees to wash his disciples' feet. Well, think about how the God who so loved us went to Gethsemane.
I've always been fascinated by Gethsemane. Growing up, you know, people always tell me Jesus is God and Jesus is man, and they never explain how it all fit. And for me, I was on the opposite side. I'm like, yeah, I read about this guy, Jesus, in the Bible. He seems more God than man to me. You know, like, I wish I could walk on water. You know, like, I mean, I believe that I can pray and, and God can heal somebody, but Jesus just seems to heal whoever he wants, right? That'd be a nice power. So I always struggle to understand this Jesus is man thing because every story I read about, I'm like, no, praise God, he's God. Until I got to Gethsemane. Gethsemane to me is the, the, the place where you see Jesus' humanity. There's probably the most human, in my opinion, that Jesus ever exists in all of eternity is in Gethsemane. Because what happens in Gethsemane is both terrifying, but it's also beautiful. Gethsemane, you know what Gethsemane reminds me of? It reminds me of your wedding day. Right? Jesus' entire life, he knew he was coming to die. His entire life, he even told people, the whole week he's telling people, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Yet when he gets to Gethsemane, he had to send angels. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. Whew. When we get to Gethsemane, God had to send angels to strengthen Jesus. And the scripture says he sweat drops of blood. I'm sweating a lot, but none of them is blood, right? He needed to be filled up. And the reason I think Gethsemane is like your wedding day is because if you do it the way you're supposed to do it, hopefully this isn't like, you know, like you just met last night and you're like, hey, let's try this out, right? Like usually on your wedding day, you met the person, you fell in love with the person. And here's the other thing. You usually spent a lot of months and way too much money planning for this thing. So it's not like it's a surprise to you. But on the wedding day, you get nervous. And why do you get nervous? I believe that you get nervous because it's a very human thing. Because all your hopes and dreams are now meeting reality. And until you accept that reality, you can't be happy. And you can't make that decision. And I think that's what Gethsemane reminds me of when it comes to Jesus Christ. He knew his whole life he was going to die. But when it came, he was just like, God, are you sure? Like, are you sure, sure? You know what I mean? Like, we've been planning this whole thing for a long time now. But, like, is there any other way? But after Gethsemane, we get to Calvary's cross. And we call it Good Friday because it's only good for us. We call it Good Friday, but we remember that Jesus went to Calvary's tree, and he died, and he was beaten, and he was broken, and he died for the world. But after Good Friday, and after Saturday with all the mourning and Jesus going into the depths of hell, we get to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. We get to celebrate not just Easter, but Resurrection Sunday. That our God who came, that our God who lived, that our God who died, is our God who's been raised again. So when you think about Palm Sunday today, I want you to answer what Jesus has been asking for thousands of years. Am I your king? Because Palm Sunday is Jesus ushering in the kingdom of God. And really, when Jesus ushers in this kingdom of God, I think there's four things he wants us to hold on to this morning. The first one is that Jesus is God who's come and God who's coming. And Jesus has come and he's coming, but not for your hopes and dreams. We need to hear that this morning. A lot of us think God exists for our hopes and dreams. A lot of us think God exists for our, our versions of the future or what we think good is. Jesus did not come for your hopes and dreams. He came to fulfill the Father's will. And we need to start living the same way. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't care for your hopes and dreams, you know. It's just not about your hopes and dreams. See the difference, right? It doesn't mean God doesn't care about the things you care about and your hopes and dreams. No, he cares about them. 
but it's about his work for the world. God didn't just come for you. He came for the world. So stop living for your hopes and dreams and start living to do the Father's will. And if Jesus is your king, you will say, God, it's not about my hopes and dreams. It's about your will being done. And Jesus came to do the Father's will. And if he's our king, we must live to do the same. Jesus came to do what his father wanted to be done in this world, and we must live to do the same. And the best part, I think, about all of this is this reminder that, yes, Jesus came for you and for you and for you and for me, but let us never forget that Jesus came for the world. So much of our faith is about us. So much of our faith is only about the individual. How am I doing with God? How am I doing in my faith? How am I growing in my faith? And that's good start. But Jesus cares about the world. And your answers and your questions have to start looking like, but God, what are you doing in our world? But God, how can I join your work in our world? It can't just be, but God, what can you do for me? Or God, what can I do for you? It's got to be about we. I love the cross. But God wants our relationship to look like the cross, right? It can't just be vertical, me and God. It's also got to be about your sister and brother. Because John, who was Jesus' best friend, reminds us, how can you say you love God if you don't love your sister and your brother who's sitting right next to you? Jesus came for the world, and we must do the same. But the last most beautiful thing about Jesus coming and still coming today is that Jesus comes to set us free. The Passover, they celebrated liberation and, and freedom from slavery, and they still celebrate that today. But I think what we must hold on to is this simple truth, that yes, Jesus died on a cross for our sins, and in his dying on a cross for our sins, we've been forgiven. But never forget that as long as we're on this side of heaven, the flesh will war within. As long as we're on this side of heaven, there's still work for God to do. As long as we're on this side of heaven, God still needs to make us and remake us into the image of his son. So when Jesus says, I save you, it's not just a one-time thing. It means that if you're struggling with any kind of addiction today, we have a God who saves. It means that if you're struggling with any kind of brokenness today, we have a God who makes whole. It means that if you need some healing for your mind, for your body, for your soul, we have a God who blesses us with his shalom. God didn't just save us once on Calvary's tree. Praise God, he's still saving us today. So any brokenness that's within you, any darkness that's within you, any struggle that's within you, praise God who saves you today. And now is the day of salvation. Palm Sunday must be us answering this question. Is Jesus our king? Is he the one we trust to forgive sins? Is he one that we trust to have always existed? Is he the one we trust to be the faithful good judge? But most of all, is he the king that we want to be living and ruling our lives? I'd like to invite the, uh, the deacons to get ready for communion. Every Palm Sunday, we're blessed to take in communion together. And not just as a reminder of what Jesus did on, on the Last Supper, but as this beautiful reminder of our God who freely, who willingly, and who lovingly gave his body and his blood for us. Communion this week will be up front. I'd like to invite you to be people in the, the middle rows who are dismissing you. Take your time before you come up. Take your time and pray and get right with God before you come up. But as we take communion this morning, may we just hold on to 
that Jesus isn't just our king because he lived back then, but Jesus is our king because he lives today. Amen? Amen. We now invite you to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you are perfect, but that you, are sin- that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing. And he told his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willing sacrifice on the cross, for the breaking of your body and the spilling of your blood for our sins. Words cannot express the gratitude in our hearts for the gift of life that you have given. Help us today as we partake of the bread and the cup. Help us to remember you and all you did for us. Help us to show our love for you and our gratitude in the ways we live. Amen? Please join me now in the communion response. My sisters and brothers, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? My sisters and brothers, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Come to the table as you're ready.